0: to the empathy mining podcast. This is episode 3 and today I have a special guest. One of my oldest and dearest friends, Andy Ferris. Andy, are you there? Can you hear me? I
1: I'm here, Shane.
0: Very good. So, uh Andy and I go way back. I think to what was it second third grade somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, and probably uh, before that even. Oh yeah. Well, I don't remember that far back, but I I seem to remember you being there the whole time. So, uh, yeah. Um, Andy has uh, joined the education community here in the last, how many years now? Three?
1: This is my third year.
0: Third year. Uh, So, he got into it late in life like I did, but uh, even later. So, uh, I thought the first time I have Andy here on the podcast that we would talk a little bit about education some of the things we see uh, give you the inside look into what teachers experience and some of the frustrations maybe we have. So just uh, start us off here, Andy, and tell us about how you got into education and uh, your situation now and what you're, what you're seeing.
1: Well, it was about four years ago, and I'd been working in the corporate world for quite a long time, and I felt like I was at a kind of a dead end in that area, and I felt like I wanted to do something a little different, something that maybe gave back to our society a little bit more, and I had thought about teaching before, and um, one morning, my wife and I were sitting here, and she was reading in the newspaper that there was a program that would allow... um, non-educators to become teachers in a relatively short period of time so I thought hey this could be a way to transition to a new career and so I did that and so we call it alternative route to licensing here in Las Vegas it's a three-month program after that those three months of going to classes and and meetings for three days a week and doing some out outside of class work um, I was able to have my license that got me into the classroom and so I've been uh, doing that ever since. Um, this is my third year, finishing up my third year, and it has been an eye-opening experience for sure. You always hear that teaching is one of the hardest jobs you can have, and I've, I've known that intellectually, but now I know it in my heart <laughs> because I'm there every day seeing what goes on and all the challenges that teachers have. So it has been, um, it's been a, an interesting three years and I'm kind of at a crossroads at the moment of what I'm going to do next because of that but just suffice to say teaching is very difficult and there's a lot of obstacles put in our way
0: okay so uh I've been in the game 18 years now and uh I've seen it change tremendously uh in those 18 years I can tell you that uh it's harder now than it was 18 years ago. That's for sure. Not only because of uh, the new stress we're under from high stakes testing and uh, uh, increased accountability and all of that, but because I think the kids have changed so much. I think uh, I think we're seeing an increase, especially in urban schools like you and I teach in, um, an increase in the effects of trauma coming into our classrooms. Uh, I just got, um, a very disturbing text this morning. Um, and it's the second such text I've gotten this year. One of my students' fathers uh, died last night of an overdose, second time what? this year. So we got, uh, we got that. And, and there's a lot of those kinds of stories in my classrooms mm-hmm. and I'm sure in yours as well. So, um, teachers now have to be, I think more or less, uh, not just teachers, but guidance counselors. And I, I consider myself almost a missionary in that. Right. So so much of, I mean, we put up with an awful lot more um, behaviors because our kids are coming in with an awful lot more trauma and carrying that, that, uh, the effects of that into our classroom. So we, we can't take that uh, behavior personally. We have to understand that it's coming from a place that they really can't control uh, it's a sort of an involuntary response to any kind of stressors they have, so it is uh, it is really really up the stress on teachers as well um, because it's a different game.
1: Totally, I mean, you know,
0: and I I've, I've seen you write
1: um, about the trauma aspect of it, and that has changed the way I've looked at it a little bit. Probably not as much as it should, because it's not taking it personally is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it makes sense when someone says, you know, don't take it personally. They're not doing it to you. It's something they brought into the room, but when you're in the room with with the student who you are with every day, you feel like you develop that relationship, and it's it's difficult not to take it personally. But it's a very important thing to keep in mind. It is and very difficult. And and what you've talked about the trauma aspect of it is so important because I can see that in their faces. Say when someone gets in trouble or a student feels disrespected because they're being corrected or told they need to do something else, you can kind of see that switch go off in their mind where all of a sudden they're in defense mode. Yep.
0: Fight or flight. Yes. And, uh, and, and it doesn't always manifest itself that way either. There are kids who, when they feel that stressor, they basically shut down. They they close off their emotions and they just sit there and you never know uh, what's going on. But those are the ones that uh, that can really disrespect or they don't act out physically or aggressively. They internalize it and they're sitting there. You don't even know it, right? Those, Those are the ones that I I kind of yeah
1: I just. I just had a student, and I teach fourth grade, so my students are 9 and 10 years old. Um, I had a student just a couple weeks ago. She had brought a steak knife to school. It was in her backpack. And this is one of the girls who is very – she's usually very quiet, very well-behaved. She's not a behavior problem. Uh, but there it was. She had a, a steak knife in her in her backpack, and another girl in my class was upset at one of the boys, and somehow she knew she had the knife. She got the knife and threatened the boy with the knife. So these are two kids now, two girls that are not behavior problems, but I don't know what's going on at home with them. You know, what would cause one of them to bring a knife? I don't know if they coordinated it together so that the the second girl could have a knife, but they ended up both being suspended for five days. Yeah. And that was one that just came, came out of the blue. It's like, what? She did that. That girl had a knife at school and it takes you by surprise because like you said she's she's one that stays quiet most of the time and and I don't know what's going on in her home life but something caused her to bring a knife and something caused the other girl to ask for that knife and to wield it. And that's scary at 9 and 10 years old. You know what would drive someone to do that? Exactly.
0: That that kind of thing happens every year in you know, a lot of I mean it happens in my school similar things that what you just described every year, at least once, uh, sometimes multiple times. Um, you, you touched on this, the stress that you experience as a teacher uh, and how it's kind of got you thinking about your future and stuff, and I can certainly relate to that. Um, that's that's the other aspect. That's the other side of the drama, the trauma beneath the drama uh, in the teachers deal with because not only do we have to try to uh, not take things personally, uh, but we also have to deal with the the trauma that, that puts on us. Right. It it can be really, really stressful and it can really wreck your health Uh, for for the last two or three years. It's been really rough on me, uh, the situations at our school and, not just the kids, but other, other factors I won't go into, but, uh, the, uh, the stress on me was keeping me from sleeping and, uh, and it was putting me into basically into depression a lot of times, uh, where I I wasn't a good dad or a husband either. I just kind of went, wanted to go to bed about seven o'clock every night. Yes. I'd I'd wake up at midnight and two, and sometimes I'd just get up and go to work and try to figure out another way to, to reach some of these kids. And basically it, it almost ended. I don't even know if I told you this. I don't think I have. Uh, It almost ended up in a a bit of a breakdown for me uh, right before Christmas. And I took myself out of school for a couple of days, went and got some uh, evaluation. And uh, since then, I've been on antidepressants. Hmm. I can tell you that has been a godsend um, for sure. It it has stabilized my my mood and uh, I'm sleeping through the night and I am not taking things personally it, it, it removes that immediate re- emotional response when things go wrong in the classroom and right to uh, just saying hey look I love you but you're not gonna be able to do that let's go down, let's, let's go down to the principal's office and and that kind of thing and I don't I don't ever let anything escalate anymore and right that's just it's really improved my relationship with some of my rougher uh, classes as well so and and I can tell you this. Uh, there are a lot of teachers in my building and I'm sure all across the nation that are that are under medication now, too. And it's been a it's a good thing, but it's a bad thing that we had to get there in the first place.
1: Right. Exactly. But it, it's, it's like a PTSD. Exactly. I mean, you 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 build all the stress during the day. I mean, I walk into my classroom knowing that I'm going to be battling with a certain group of kids all day long. Yeah. And, you know, I've never had a job where I did that where I felt like I'm going to go in today and I'm going to have to argue with people all day. <laughs> you know what I mean? That doesn't happen in normal jobs where you're under that type of stress. And, and, and it just wears you down.
0: And, and it, it's the case, I'm sure, with you as well as where I am. It's usually a handful of kids. It's not... Most of the kids, by and large, are good. Yes. Kids who, who really do want to do well. But it's those five or six kids that make it almost impossible to get that done sometimes and, and, and yeah. they dominate all of your time and energy. And it makes you, it really makes you almost have to neglect the good kids, which is the real shame in it. Um, right. That's one of the reasons I'm such a huge proponent, even at earlier ages for alternative type placements for kids uh, that, that just don't seem to be in, interested in the, in traditional school at all. Right. No, I agree because, you yeah, know,
1: the energy, energy that they suck from the room is so, so big. And, you know, I have students that sit there day after day, do the right thing, are always on task, are waiting for the next thing to do. And I can't get to the next thing. Yeah. And I, I see them sitting there. I see them rolling their eyes. I see them looking away because they know, here we go again with Johnny, who who's going to act up and now is going to get all his, all of his attention. And sometimes I fear that, you know, even the good kids start to act out because that's how they know they're going to get attention, whether it's good or bad. At least they're being acknowledged. If I'm not acknowledging their good behavior, they have to turn to bad behavior, and that's you know the, a lot of that is on me because I'm not spending that time with them. But like you said, it's so
0: it's so hard to get to them. Interesting point there. i have not really considered that before, but I could. See I that definitely I definitely seen that in my room. Yeah. Now we should say too that i teach eighth grade uh, you teach what was it four Fourth yeah. grade. so you, your your stress is at a different kind of level that you face on a daily basis because you're with the same group of kids all day long
1: uh yeah we actually switch so i have one other class for half the day so we are so you're half a, a day, day at least yeah half Where a day I, with...
0: I, I have my circus class uh 49 minutes a day so <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine being in that in some of my in my one particularly bad mix of kids. I couldn't imagine having them for half a day every day.
1: Right. Yeah. That, they never leave. They're that always
0: drives me right out the window. <laughs> right. I'm so and those and those, hey, and those four or five kids? I'm, gone. See, I'm, I'm going to jump out this window right here. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah,
1: and, and those four or five kids that
0: give you the most trouble are never absent. By the way. oh, yes, exactly. Their parents don't <laughs> they're work always at home. there. Are you kidding? It's free babysitting, baby. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> breakfast and lunch too. I mean, and that's a big part of it as well. I mean, we have free free lunch and free breakfast for everybody in our school. As do we. Yeah,
0: yeah at least so for that now. Tells
1: you that tells you the neighborhood and kind of the the area you're working with. And some of these kids, if they don't get that breakfast and lunch, they may not eat again that day.
0: Exactly. I just, yeah, uh, I just wrote a piece about that because of Trump's uh, uh, budget proposal, cutting a, over a billion dollars out of those funds for uh, um, food programs. It's unreal. Yeah. On top of what he cut last year. And there are some districts I know, IPS, Indianapolis uh, public schools here uh, that offer food programs throughout the summer and, and holiday breaks as well.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Um, so that is a key element that uh, could be taken away or, or reduced. That is, uh, like you said, maybe the only time that those kids are going to get a steady meal. Yeah. Yeah,
1: for sure. I mean, I, I'll see kids uh, during the free breakfast time. If, if someone else doesn't like what they have that day, they'll ask if they can take it. And I see them put it in their backpack for later. Like, you know, not
0: later today, but later, maybe that night. Right. And, and know, they're, whenever, they're the breakfast, their- whenever the breakfast comes around in the mornings, I have two or three kids in my homeroom class that go around hoarding food that other kids don't want to eat.
1: Yes. And it's like, exactly.
0: wow, that that kid is not getting enough food. It's exactly. Or can I take, if there's any le- leftover,
1: can I take one home from my brother? Sure. Oh, man. That's. Oh, and it's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. They're They're at nine and ten years old. They're. They have this pressure and responsibility
0: of trying to find food for their siblings. They're breadwinners. yeah, right. Oh man. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the impact of the government and political influences on education and where that's headed and and the, I think, very troubling direction it's it's being attempted to be taken uh so let's say uh let's start with teacher accountability what do you think about uh the fact that uh, i don't know what the the ritzy wealthy school district areas of las vegas are but let's say um let's just what name name a district
1: well we have one big district here in in nevada in, in Las Vegas, the Clark County School District—it's the fifth largest school district in the country—and um, so we're all under this one big umbrella. All of them
0: so, but but you you've got, yeah, obviously but, you'll have some schools that are very affluent, I'm sure. Yes, and then you've got schools like you—you you said most of your kids are are on the free and reduced lunch, yes—and and are kind of scrounging for food and all that. Uh, so, do you think that the public understands? that the way teachers are evaluated makes those kids and those teachers that teach in affluent schools and teachers that teach in schools like ours get our kids over the same bar every year. Right. Do you think that, do you think people understand that?
1: I don't think so. I don't think that's something most people think about. You know, they, they think about their kid and their school and, and, you know, we all tend to just concentrate on our own family and what we're involved in and most people probably aren't thinking about what another school might be doing, especially someone that's in a more affluent school. They're not thinking about those kids that are in the school that we teach and what they're going through, and how much difficult, more difficult it is to bring those kids where they need to be. Uh, because some of these kids, you know, I have a boy in my room who literally can't read. I mean, at all, right? right? And he's in fourth grade. So what am I? What's going to happen with that with that boy as he goes through? He's his test scores are gonna be nowhere near where they should be. And I have a you know, a lot of kids that are way behind like that. And you're held accountable
0: for those kids' test scores. Right. The teacher. And I don't know how it works in in Nevada, but in Indiana, the whether or not we get pay raises each year depends on this convoluted formula that includes how well our kids do on the tests. Right. So when you're talking about affluent schools that have only a handful of kids that would be like the majority of our kids and then our type schools that are so dealing with so much stuff outside the classroom that it's ridiculous uh are, are, you, are you telling me that those teachers in those affluent schools are doing so much better job teaching their kids than we are I mean, right that's the, that's what the government is telling people and they label us right. as failing schools when quite frankly, we're in many cases working miracles on a daily basis to get these kids any education.
1: Yeah, any at all. Exactly.
0: So uh, I just don't understand how people don't see through that. I've, I've tried my best to put it out there in the public by what I write, but uh, yeah. it just seems to be a continual attack uh, from those powers that be in, in our state governments that are trying to make it more and more difficult for public schools. And at the same time, part two, let's take public tax money and let people use that to put their kids in private schools. Right. Which uh, is there any way that you can see? I can't see it. Is there any way that you can see that that is not unconstitutional? I mean,
1: it just doesn't seem like that to. To take, you know, the cream of the crop out of the lower schools and move them into a private school somewhere or a charter school is only decreasing the level of, you know, the scores and things that that are going on in the schools we're teaching. exactly it's wide- so, Yeah, there's no there's no way that that's going to help my and my, you know, and I hear the I hear the the complaint that, you know, you can't just throw money at the problem. Um, that's that may be true that you can't just do that, but that has to be a part of it. I mean. The school I'm in, um, you know, our textbooks are, you know, crappy, falling apart. You know, we share books sometimes. We don't have all of the things that the, the more affluent schools have. So just on that level, they're not equipped as well as the, the the richer schools.
0: Right. And my my theory is, what this is really going to, and let's not let's just not sugarcoat anything. I believe Betsy DeVos and, and some of these state government um, education agency, what they're pushing for, whether they know it or not, is segregation again. Right. Because who's going to take advantage of the private school vouchers for the most part? The wealthiest.
1: But the people and, with money. And let's
0: right? say with the wealthiest and the – go ahead and say it – mostly whitest families right. in, those, in those schools that are labeled as failing. So you take those kids and and there's plenty of affluent black families that would take advantage of it, too. But I think probably the majority you're going to see. It's basically going to it's going to look like segregation. Right. And you said you can't throw money at the problem, which might be true. But you sure as heck can't take money away from the problem.
1: Exactly. That's what happens
0: right. when they lose <laughs> students out of these public schools? A lot of the money we get is based on the enrollment we have you're right. students, you're removing tons and tons of money. So, yeah, we didn't we didn't uh, take money away from that school, but you took students away from the school, which takes money for away from the school. Exactly.
1: So they can couch it in a way that doesn't sound like they're taking money. Yeah, but they are. and And we know where their money, where the money they're taking is going. It's going to for profit schools. Yep. And that's you know, there's nothing about education that should be for profit. Nope. Just like healthcare and some other issues, we could talk about as well. There, that should not be a for-profit enterprise. And when it becomes that, it becomes more about the the stakeholders and the and the corporation than it does the kids. It's going to happen every time. That's how that's how those type of corporations and entities work. They're there to make money.
0: So back to teacher accountability. Yes. Uh, teachers aren't. I think a lot of times the general public think that teachers don't want to be held accountable. They're afraid of, uh, to, to be assessed and, and held accountable for their, their work. And that's just not the case. What we want is fair accountability. Right. You're, where you're comparing apples to apples instead of apples to oranges, or you're comparing, in, in Indianapolis case, IPS you're, with a Carmel or a Zionsville. That is what is is not, not fair it's just obvious to anybody who has ever been anywhere near these schools so what is in your opinion what would you welcome with a fair accountability I have my ideas but I want I'd like to hear yours how could you be fairly uh, evaluated and held accountable for your job as a teacher well
1: I think you'd have to start it looking at where the kids are when they come in yep and not and not not holding them to a baseline that doesn't exist for your school so if if there's a baseline statewide or nationwide that they're holding my kids accountable to some of those kids will never even get to that baseline by the end of the year much less start there so you know we need to look at the school and where that particular school is at that particular time and then look at the growth they make from that point uh, and, and to compare it and to say that everybody in theory is starting at the same baseline because they're all in fourth grade or eighth grade so that we assume they're all at the same place. You're never going to get to the same place at the end of the year with all of those kids. Cause you're not starting at the same place.
0: Exactly. So that's pretty much exactly where I, I am on that. I think the, the fairest way to test and assess me and, and, Evaluate what I've done is to test my kids on what they know about U.S. history when they come in day one and test them again at day 180. And that is what I did. That's not what anybody else did. That's not what people did who had them in the years before me. It's what I did. Right. Where they started. This is where they ended up. I welcome that anytime. Bring it on. Right. Uh, Exactly. However, that's just not the way it's done. So. I mean, there is a growth formula built into it, but it's not nearly enough. So, uh, yes, I totally agree.
1: And it's frustrating because we know going in that we're behind the eight ball and it's not going to we're never going to get there. So We start with fighting a losing battle, and that's demoralizing as a teacher right off the bat. It's like, well, I know I'm not going to reach my the goals they've set. I know that's impossible. So now what? (laughs) Now what do I do to, to get some type of a recognition or some type of, you know, a way of knowing, okay, this is what I've actually done with my kids. And can that be recognized as a good thing or is it only going to be recognized as you failed? See, my my
0: skeptic side of me, and I hope this is not the case, but I, I'm having a hard time not seeing it as, as the case. My fear is that, there is an element in the government that wants to see public schools fail and they set it up that way. Right. Because they can point at it and look and say, look at, look at how these schools are failing. Let's put, let's totally change education and make it like you said, for-profit, uh, and, and privatized and all that. that that's, I, I can't, I don't know how to see it any other way. Uh, in, That the the whole thing here in Indiana with Mitch Daniels and and Tony Bennett, and then later Mike Pence as governor, that's what set me on a path to looking at everything differently because of uh, that. So, right, I mean, it was it made national news. I mean, it was downright scandalous. They got caught with their hand in a cookie jar, they got caught uh, patting the grades of their pet charter schools and private schools that they wanted to prop up and and. Changing their grades from an F to a C or whatever just because that's that's the ones they wanted to shine their light on. Look at how we're succeeding. In the meantime, right. they totally fabricated it. They got caught. Wow. So how can I how can I look at it any differently?
1: Right. I mean that there there I don't know what other way there is to look at it. Yeah. It's the old, you know, we're gonna we're gonna handicap this department and then when it fails, we're gonna point at it and say, Look,
0: it failed just like we said it would. Yep. In the meantime, uh, teachers keep plugging away and we keep going yep. in every day, trying to be missionaries, uh, trying to keep all that political nonsense, uh, pressed down somewhere deep inside us. And we go in there and we try to do the best we can for these kids that need love and lots of it.
1: They certainly do. Yeah. So. It's, it's a tough battle and, you know, it take, it really And this it sounds like a cliche, but it takes a special kind of person to be a teacher. And it really, really does. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, for that to be your calling, you know, that's not everybody is called to be a teacher. And I'm, you know, I'm still trying to figure out if if I'm if I've been called or not, because it doesn't always feel that way. Um, But I know that there are there are teachers I see who I, I know have been called to teach and I see, you know the way they go at it day to day. And it's like, wow, that's, you know, that's impressive that, that teachers can teach for as long as you have and other teachers that I see that have been teaching for decades. You know, to me, that is just incredible just based on my three years of experience.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we've done it. I think we've solved the education problem. Good. If, What's next? Uh, well, <laughs> there will be next. We've got lots of stuff yeah. to cover. But we're going to call this one a wrap i appreciate the time you spent to come in and help us uh, sort this out and uh, uh andy will be back again and again to talk about some other topics besides education so thanks for joining us
1: thanks shane i appreciate you having me on today
0: all right you've been listening to the empathy mining podcast look for another episode soon